Psalm 114. Had a little bit of a uh, little bit of a break from the Psalms in the last several weeks. Psalm 114. Just a reminder, this is, uh, we're still in this little pocket of what's called Hallel Psalms. That's just Hallelujah Psalms or Psalms that uh, up until Psalm 118, uh, that the, the theme is to give thanks or to praise or it's a Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, and this is in the middle of that collection. So Psalm 114, starting in verse 1. It says, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. What eld thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back? You mountains that you skipped like rams, and you little hills like lambs. Tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, which turned the rock into a standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. So we have in Psalm 114 a fairly short psalm, but uh, you'll Notice, or at least we'll try to draw out tonight, that you have a lot of Israel's history packed into a very short psalm that is uh, full of um, poetic references and imagery. Uh, there, there are some uh, references here that are just words um, that are thrown out there that really represent larger, larger stories. So this is a historical type psalm, but it's uh, it's historical in the sense that it's it's driving the audience in a direction, and we don't have to guess about what that direction is. It's a direction of praising God for who He is and for what He's done, and uh, this one in particular is focusing Old Testament wise on redemptive history, what God did as he brought his people out of Egypt and, and even some of um, the purposes and applications that we should take from that. So we're going to break the psalm up into three different chunks. Um, the Lord's covenant people in verses 1 to 2. The witness of nature, verses 3 through 6. And the covenant God, verses 7 through 8. So three different chunks here. Section number one, the first couple of verses, the Lord's covenant people. The Lord's covenant people. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Now, this is obviously uh, referring back to the Exodus when God delivered his people from the bondage of slavery uh, in Egypt, from the, the, uh, uh, the bondage of Pharaoh and uh, brought them out. It says that when he brought them out, verse 2 
references Judah and Israel, I don't think there's really a uh, a distinction that's trying to be made poetry-wise. Um, I think it's more of a parallel. Uh, Judah was his sanctuary. Israel was his dominion. I, I think here's the point of the first couple of verses. God led his people out of Egypt. And when he led his people out of Egypt, he led them out for a purpose. And the purpose was that they might be his possession. Okay, so you'll notice the way that progresses in those first couple of verses. He leads them out of Egypt, out of the house, uh, the house of Jacob, out of, out from a people of a strange language. But then Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So this is both describing the place where God dwells or the people with whom God dwells, but also the people who are under his dominion. So it references really back to um, passages like Exodus 19. We'll turn there. Exodus 19. Verse six. This is as God is is uh, speaking to the nation of Israel about the covenant, about the fact that they're going to be a peculiar people or treasure on earth for him. And then in verse six, it says of Exodus 19. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So um, Psalm 114 uses a little bit different language. That, uh, Judah was his sanctuary. Well, you're going to be unto me... Uh, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. That just means when I brought you out of Egypt, I didn't bring you out of Egypt for you. I brought you out of Egypt for me. It was, it's, it's, it's the plan and the, it's the plans and purposes that I have for you that I tend, that I intend to execute. I'm not giving you freedom just for freedom's sake. And obviously, whenever we think about redemptive history and the Exodus and Israel being brought out of um, Egypt, those parallel with uh, uh, imagery with us and the salvation that we have in Christ being brought out of the bondage of sin. And so, again, one of the themes here is God has led his people out of bondage but it was so that we could be his treasured possession. It was so that we could be his holy people. It was so that we could be his holy nation, a priesthood unto him. You know, this is a, this is an applicable point, pretty pertinent point in a lot of the shallow circles of Christianity that thinks that God is just concerned about making us happy, that God is just concerned with, with essentially being a genie in a bottle, that 
uh, our prayers all revolve around what we want and our our dreams and expectations all revolve around our desires and and what it is that we're longing for. And, and, And God's saying here, as far as the people of God, you've been brought out of bondage for my purposes, not your purposes. Um, just because you've been redeemed doesn't make me a genie to you. It makes me a God to you. Um, the, the, the goal is that you become the nation, the holy nation that I envision for my people. So Exodus 19, 6. We see that carry over into the New Testament with 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 through 12, in describing uh, the redeemed, he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation or your manner of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So again, here Peter is picking up on what God says in Exodus 19. I think it's what's being referenced in Psalm 114, 1 and 2. But he's applying this to believers in Christ now. And he's saying, you've been chosen for a purpose. You are still to be that holy nation. You're still to be that royal priesthood. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that you might show forth the praises of him. And then he gets very practical about that in verses 11 and 12, particularly as he talks about abstaining from fleshly lust and uh, having your manner of life honest among the Gentiles or the unbelievers. One of the running themes, and we've talked about this as we've been in the Psalms, but one of the running themes through Scripture is the kingdom of God. God is actively building His kingdom. That is, the place where God dwells, the place where God's people are, the place where God's people are living under His rule and reign. And so, we find that what is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, which is a very common understanding of this, the substance of it is where we are now under Christ. Revelation 5 would reference this as well. Revelation 5. Verse 
starting in verse 9. Revelation 5, starting in verse 9, it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We've been made unto God kings and priests, this priesthood. And so one of the questions is, how, how are we, how are we priests? How have we been made priest unto God? And I would say, based on the function of a priest in the uh, ceremonial law, at least in two ways. Number one, um, as we make intercession at the throne of grace for one another. In the Old Testament, it was the priest who interceded on behalf of the people. Okay, and, and we mimic that. This is not all, this is not the only time we should be doing it, but, but, but we mimic that, or maybe I should say we fulfill that role, um, as we commit ourselves, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this on Sunday with the church covenant, as we commit ourselves to uh, interceding on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we commit ourselves to interceding on behalf of our loved ones who may not even yet know Christ, as we bring our petitions to Him, a priest or an individual who was part of the priesthood was an individual who was praying. They were interceding on the behalf of those that they represented, they were also coming to God in prayer for themselves as well. So through intercession. Secondly, we are priests as we bring sacrifices before the Lord. Okay, And, and what I'm thinking of here as far as a New Testament reference is Romans 12, uh, one through two, as we are called to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. And then he goes on right after that to say, be not conformed to the world, but be renewed through the spirit of your mind. So as we think about what it means, again, as a priesthood to Offer up ourselves a living sacrifice to God. Okay, the intercession part's pretty cut and dry. We're, we're, we're coming to the throne of grace, interceding for others. We're also, we have access to God as we pray for personal matters. But the living sacrifice thing can be a little less clear. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're committed to a lifestyle of repentance, of the renewing of our minds and of walking in righteousness. What is it that we're placing on the altar as a royal priesthood? And the answer to that is not we're looking for a sacrifice that will somehow atone for our sin. That's been made. 
Okay, we're not trying to redo what Christ has already done. What we're doing is we're trying to bring those sacrifices to the Lord that are pleasing, that are a sweet-smelling savor, and that has to be consistent with what He has laid out for us in Scripture. So, the sacrifice of praise, yes. Worship in spirit and truth, yes. Okay, but all of that is going to take place in the context of a lifestyle that says, I'm not just here for show. There is no way to bring acceptable sacrifice to the Lord if you and your personal life are not active in repentance, having your mind renewed through Scripture, and a, and serious about a disciplined walk in righteousness. Okay, so a priest uh, in the Old Testament, the priesthood really consumed his life. He didn't clock in and clock out. Now, there were different times where he would serve different functions, but it was everything. So when we're thinking about what does it mean to come to God and to be a royal priesthood, this is something that that uh, really covers your whole life. It's everything that you do. You present yourself as that sacrifice, which means you're putting yourself to death daily. He would come after me, must take up his cross and uh, must take up his cross daily and follow me. So denying self, those sacrifices of praise as we seek to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and we war against the lust of the flesh as First Peter called us to. So the Lord's covenant people, they were brought out of, according to Psalm 114, brought out of Egypt, out of this people of a strange language, but they were brought out so they might be His sanctuary and so they might be His dominion or His kingdom. The Lord's covenant people. Secondly, we see the witness of nature. This is a really highly poetic portion. It says the sea saw it. They saw it. They saw the Lord bringing His people out of Egypt. The sea saw it and fled. The Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back? You mountains that you skipped like rams and you little hills like lambs. So again, these are very short historical references. So in, in verse 3, the sea saw it and fled. That's a reference to Exodus 14 as the Red Sea was parted. Okay, the people of God were coming out. They were surrounded. The sea in the front, the enemy in the back. And the sea just parted. And they walked through. Uh, the river or the Jordan was driven back. In a reference to Joshua 4.18, they crossed the Jordan, another parting of the waters there. And then the mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs, I think is a, is a reference to uh, Mount Sinai. Seems to be a consistent interpretation of that. Um, in Exodus 19, 16 through 18, where the people came upon Mount Sinai, it was smoking, it was quaking, it was shaking, it was a... Well, it was a terrifying sight. 
Now, the, the question that begins in, in verse 5 is really what we're after. These historical references aren't laid out there just to give you a reminder. He's going to ask a question. What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back? Ye mountains that you skipped like rams and ye hills like lambs. The question is, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? And we get an answer, at least it's alluded to in verse 7, tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Why did the sea do that? Why did the Jordan do that? Why did the mountains and the hills do that? Because of the presence of the Lord. That's why. Because the God of the universe who had chosen a people to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt didn't just give them a map and say, go this way. His presence dwelt with His people. And then we said he brought his people out so that they would be a special possession or a treasured possession. Not only did his presence dwell with his people, but his presence dealt with the obstacles that stood in the way of where he was taking his people. The Red Sea's in front, Egypt's in back. Humanly speaking, there were two options. Walk into the sea and drown yourselves or let Pharaoh and the Egyptian army slaughter you. Those are the two options. Except for option number three. And that is the presence of God went before them and the sea was parted. Uh, same thing as far as the, the Jordan River goes. It was a little less, uh, uh, it was a little smaller deal, although we wouldn't say smaller in the sense that none of us can go part waters, but and then Mount Sinai, you have this mountain that's quaking and trembling. Why? Well, it's because of the presence of the Lord. Tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Now in verses 7 and 8, we're thinking about the covenant God. He calls the earth to tremble at God's presence. And then he says, which turned the rock into a standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. He's referring to the water that gushed out of the rock. Moses struck. That's Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Um, but there's more going on here. Psalm 114 was not written so that the earth might tremble. Psalm 114 was written for the people of God. Okay, so, so here's a question. If the earth, which is neither moral or immoral, okay, it's neutral. If the earth is called to tremble at the presence of the Lord, how do you think fallen human beings who have fallen short of the glory of God ought to respond to His presence. That's really the application here. Um, 
It's a call to fear the Lord and to treat Him with reverence. Again, if the Red Sea, the Jordan River, Mount Sinai were all shaken at His presence, how do you suppose we ought to respond? How do you suppose we ought to think about God? God is a, is a holy God, and outside of our covering, which is Christ Jesus, we ought to be terrified to stand before the living God. Uh, the knowledge that our sin has infinitely separated us from a good standing with Him. Um, Hebrews 10.31 would remind us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because outside of Christ, when we fall into the hands of the living God, the only thing that we fall into is a God who's taking vengeance. A God who's full of wrath. Hebrews 12.29 reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. And so the only reason that this fire is quenched, the only reason that, well, we... Also think about the, the reference back to Deuteronomy 4.24. This is what Hebrews 12.29 is quoting. Add something there. He says, our God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. What's he jealous about? Well, he's jealous over his glory. He won't give it to another. He created you with a purpose, and that purpose was to live for His glory, to, to worship Him, to live a life that made much of Him, and He's jealous over that purpose. It's not a small thing for Him. And so whenever we live the way we're so prone to live, as if this world were created for us, and as if we're, as if we're the center of the universe... That's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in that sort of condition. And so as the earth is called to tremble, laying out this reality that our God is a God that is to be feared, a God that is to be reverenced, um, that fear, as far as it being a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God, that's only taken care of through Christ. He is our propitiation or satisfaction with the Father. And so sometimes we think about the fear of God and what all that means, and we've talked about that a good bit in this portion of Psalms that we're in. Is it a terrified fear? Sometimes people are quick to say, no, 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 it's not a terrified fear, it's just a reverential fear. Well, the, the real answer to that is it just depends. If you're standing before God on your own merits, 
and you are not looking to Christ as your satisfaction before God, then it ought to be a terrifying fear. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if we are thinking about what does it mean to fear God, to take God seriously, what does that mean? far as a believer goes, what should that produce in the heart of a believer? Should it produce terror in that same way? And the answer is no, it should not. But what it should produce is reverence toward God and confidence in God. Now again, I want you to think about this. As far as what the psalm has covered, the seas, the rivers the mountains, the hills, the rocks. Those things did not respond the way that they did because of the presence of God's people. The presence of God's people had nothing to do with the way creation responded. But the seas and the rivers and the mountains and the hills and the rocks responded the way that they did because of God's presence with His people. And so in a real sense, Psalm 114 for the believer is an Old Testament version of Romans 8, 31-39. So Psalm 114 is essentially asking if God's with His people, what could possibly stand in their way or oppose them? Can the Red Sea? No. Can the Jordan River? No. Can a quaking, shaking, smoking mountain? No. What could possibly... could A desert land where there are just rocks with no water? No. He turns the rock into water, as the psalmist poetically says. He strikes the rock and, and water flies out. The answer is, from Psalm 114, neither world superpowers like Egypt, can Egypt get in the way? No, they couldn't. Nor seas, nor rivers, nor mountains. If we were to take that in a Romans 8, 31 through 39 fashion. Really what this is saying is, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, what can be against you? And so we go back to Romans 8, and we'll, we'll read that section just as a, as a parallel. But uh, as you're turning there, let me read this um, verses 3 through, through 6 again. The sea saw it, that is the people coming out of Egypt, the sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back, the mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou was driven back, you mountains that you skipped like rams, and, and little hills like lambs. Why'd you do it? Because if God is for His people then His presence will remove any obstacle that stands in the way of of Him accomplishing His goal of bringing and creating for Himself a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Okay, Now this is 
almost exactly what we read when we read about um, no separation from God's love in Romans 8. So I will turn there now. This is a less uh, poetical way of saying it. Romans 8, God's redeemed people face many obstacles, many challenges, um, and yet if God's presence is with His people, which we know now, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell permanently with each and every believer who's been regenerated, uh, then who can be against us? Romans 8.31 What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, just talking about trials. Life in a fallen world is full of trials. It's not the only reason, but one of the one of the uh, main focuses that we typically are praying about on a Wednesday night, or at least mentioning for prayer, is people who are going through trials. We go through lots of trials. We have physical ailments. We lose loved ones. We have lots of sicknesses. We have all kinds of things. Will trials separate us from the love of Christ? Well, depending on what kind you're in, it might feel like it at times. Distress. Distress. It's really to be put into a tight spot. It's almost like you're trapped. It's a little bit different from a trial. Persecution. Famine. Nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, it looks like everything's against us. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we think about what it means to fear God, it ought to, number one, produce reverence toward Him, but number two, it ought to produce this kind of confidence in Him. Why? Because when God speaks... Creation obeys. When obstacles are placed in the way of God's people for God's purpose, He removes them. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean that He removes His people from troubles. It means that the troubles will never remove His people from His love. They will never get in the way of God proving Himself faithful to those whom He's re- those those who He has redeemed, those who He's called out, those who He 
uh, means to create a, ro- a royal priesthood and a holy nation out of. It's God's love. It's the love of Jesus Christ that initiated that. And it's the love of Jesus Christ that will bring it to completion. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about what does it mean to fear the Lord in light of redemptive history? Well, number one, it means we're not dealing with a God who's like us. He's not common. We shouldn't come before His presence or we shouldn't relate to Him as if He is. We approach Him with reverence and honor. But then number two, we also approach Him with confidence. Because through Christ, we've been brought into this covenant relationship, the reality of this covenant relationship with God. And there is nothing that can separate us from that love that He has for us. And so, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. It's not meant to strike terror. It's meant to strike reverence and confidence. May God bless us to hold on to that. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You that You are true to Your Word, which means that as You begin Your work, You always bring it to completion. Father, we're thankful that those of us tonight who have come to know You and love You and profess faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been brought out of Egypt as it were, and that we all have testimonies tonight of Your presence with us that has removed the obstacles that threatened to destroy the work that you started. Uh, We have gone through trials. We've gone through distresses. We've gone through uh, difficulties in life. And yet, as we look back on those, while we don't necessarily love the experience and the hurt, we can say, that they're just one more rock, one more, one more um, uh, uh, testament to your faithfulness as you've worked in our life and as you've brought us this far. And so we pray that you would bless us to approach you in reverence and in confidence as our hope is in you through Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.